Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. For the folks listening on the internet, you may occasionally hear traffic noises louder than the typical traffic noises that you hear on many of our GCA recordings because we're not far from a, a firehouse. You hear the uh, ambulances and cop cars go by, so you hear the sirens in the recordings, but it's a beautiful night in Smyrna, so we have the doors open and the breeze blowing through, much to Jeff's delight. And so you're going to hear the traffic noise, just get used to it. We are in Daniel 9 tonight, but in order to start Daniel chapter 9, I want to begin by talking a little bit about what godliness is and what godliness isn't. And I suppose along a parallel track, we could talk about what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't. Because Daniel is going to begin this chapter with an extended prayer for his people. And the prayer is going to be a confession of the sinfulness of the children of Israel and how much they deserve what they're going through. And the reason that I think this is sort of a poignant moment in time to look at this particular prayer is because there is a very common mode of supposed Christianity going around the internet these days, wherein rather than admitting that things are simply sinful because God says they are sinful, instead people are seeking to justify their sin and say that their sin isn't really all that sinful. And godliness, true genuine biblical godliness and true biblical Christianity takes the exact opposite tact, and you're going to see it here tonight. It is the admission that we are wrong, that we are sinful, and that only God can cleanse us and forgive us from our sins. You never see in the Bible anybody pray to God and say, I know you said that certain things were abhorrent to you. I know you said that some things are rebellious and sinful. But we've all gotten together, and we voted, and we decided it's not that bad. And since it's not that bad, I can define myself as a Christian who also engages in X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. For instance, there is a very well-known homosexual Christian advocate out there on the Internet right now whose approach to these questions is not to admit that God speaks against homosexuality. His approach is to say all the verses or passages about homosexuality in the Bible don't really mean what they appear to mean, that they must actually mean something where God is, is really less concerned with their particular brand or mode of homosexuality, that it would be wrong if it was uh, 
if it was male prostitution or something like that, that would be wrong. Or if it was pederasty, that, that would be wrong. But if it's two people of the same sex who genuinely love each other, well, then love covers all those other sins, and therefore they justify themselves before God rather than admitting to God we're wrong. And the safest place always to be theologically is to admit that you're wrong and that God is just in the things that he says are sinful. And if he says that things are sinful, they simply are. Now, we all know that because we live in these human fleshly bodies, that in this lifetime, we are going to continue to battle toward righteousness, but we're never going to break out of the trap of sin. We know that. But we also know that John writes that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the question, of course, is, well, then why would we even need an advocate with the Father unless our sin is actually sinful, unless our sin actually needs to be recompensed and redeemed and paid for before God? And so it is true that Jesus Christ has fully redeemed and accomplished justification for all his people. We've been talking about that for three weeks on Sunday morning. That it's true that Jesus is a complete Savior who saves completely. He's a perfect Savior who saves perfectly. And therefore, our sin debt, our sin problem is all taken care of. It's resolved. Jesus has done it. But what have we been talking about the last three weeks? The call to holiness. The call to also respond to God's salvation by living a life that is appropriate for the people of God who have been saved by God, who have been redeemed and justified by God, we then live a life that would be pleasing to God and we admit to God that everything we get, everything we have, is a result of God's justification of us, never our self-justification. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Self-justification seems to be running rampant in too many Christian circles these days. Oh, yes. So, as we look at this prayer, recognize that Daniel is crying out for God's mercy, but he's also going to do something that I find really important when the subject of prayer comes up, which is he's going to see God's word via the prophet Jeremiah. He's going to look at God's promises And then he's going to pray God's promises back to him. So basically, he is trusting in the continuity and the faithfulness of God's own word to himself. He is praying that God will simply do what God said he will do because he's a faithful God. And therefore, he can take the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, back to God and say, you said we were only going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And the 70 years is about to come to an end. So just do what you said you were going to do. And then in response, God sends him an angel, Gabriel again, who tells him 70 times seven, the future of his people. So that's the chapter in brief. Now let's read it, starting at chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, 
He was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. And in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as a word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Somebody take a look at Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. You do that, Tom. Look up Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12. And if you would, Micah, look up Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11. And in both of those places, we're going to see God say very specifically that the time of their sojourning in Babylon is going to be 70 years. Notice also that Daniel not only took God at his word, but he took it literally. This is important because he did not say, well, you said 70 years, but I think you mean a general expanse of time. It could be 50. It could be 100. We don't really know because we know how you are, God. You don't use numbers very specifically. That was all sarcasm. Because <laughs> God is very specific with the numbers that he uses in the Bible. And God has said 70 years, Daniel is holding him to his word and saying, all right, you said 70, just do what you said. And Daniel takes the word of God quite literally. Uh, Jeremiah 25, 11 to 12, read that. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. Now, let's see if both parts of that came true. After 70 years, did the children of Israel return to rebuild the temple in the streets? Well, yeah, that actually happened. God kept his word. But the other half of it is, I will lay Babylon waste, and it will remain waste. So you can go over to Iraq today. Can you find Babylon? You can find the place where it used to be. But it was not that very long ago that Saddam Hussein attempted to rebuild Babylon. He even struck coins about the fact that he was the new Nebuchadnezzar and he was going to rebuild Babylon. Did Babylon get rebuilt? No. No. Why? Because God said so. God in his word said it's not going to be rebuilt. What does Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11 say? It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years has been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So two times now we've seen God very specifically say 70 years. After 70 years, I'm going to bring you back to this very land. Now, is it worth pointing out that context, again, really, really matters? Because you can turn on, I won't name names, but their initials are TBN. Does that help? You can turn that channel on any time of any day, and you'll find somebody before very long take Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11 out of context. Jeff's laughing because he comes out of the Word of Faith movement, and he knows that they love to say, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. They love to quote that. 
but it wasn't written to the church. It was written very specifically to Israel. God then fulfilled his word to Israel by bringing them back after 70 years the same way he said, and that he ultimately always has good plans for Israel. So I just want to point that out so that we keep everything in the Bible in context. Context really matters. So Daniel has said, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him in prayer and supplications with fasting in sackcloth and ashes. Notice the posture. It is not a posture of arrogance or pride. He starts by dressing in sackcloth, which is itchy material, uncomfortable material. And oftentimes when people would be in sackcloth and ashes, they would pray with their forehead to the ground, praying toward Jerusalem where God's temple was, and they would put ashes on their head and put rocks over their head in an attempt to make themselves even lower to the earth as they prayed and supplicated before a holy God. That's a long way away from the way people sort of burst into God's presence these days and say, here I have my list. These are the things that I want from you. The arrogance with which people approach God is stunning. But when you look at people in the Bible, think of Isaiah. The first thing he did when he saw God was fall down in front of him. Then God picked him up. And the first thing Isaiah did, it's just like the thing that Daniel's going to do here. They say, woe is me. I'm unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. And then it is God sending an angel with tongs to get a coal from the fire to touch the lips of Isaiah that even allows Isaiah to speak to that holy God. So we need to return, even if we can't change the whole church world, we need to return to that kind of reverence and remember that that God, that holy righteous God, that unapproachable God, that God invites us to come speak to him. And then his son, our advocate, is our emissary, his Holy Spirit, takes our prayers, cleans them up like sweet incense, and brings it up to God. And all of this is a gift of God to his people so that his people can communicate with him despite the fact that they are wretched and unclean and debased, and he is righteous and holy. And yet there's communication by what he did, by what he accomplished. And so we must always revere that God and remember who we're talking to. I have a bad habit, I'll tell you. I have a bad habit of praying at the end of the day. That's not the bad habit part. I pray all during the day, various different times during the day. I pray when I pick up the Bible and I'm going to be reading and I'm going to be studying. I pray regularly, but at the end of the day, when I'm laying in bed, I, I start praying, and I have a tendency to doze off. Am I the only person here who does that? Okay, that's way too much laughter, so you must also do it. And when I catch myself dozing off, I will realize it, 
and apologize to him, and I will make myself get up out of my bed and get on my knees next to the bed so that I'm keeping my body down until I'm done praying to the righteous and holy God so that I'm not just treating him like a second thought. Mm -hmm. What in the world causes that? Because I experienced that too. I mean, if I was in front of a building on fire, I wouldn't go... Fire goes <laughs> off. I mean, yeah. there would be a sense of urgency. And yeah. Maybe but yeah, when you're praying to a holy God, your, your mind starts wandering. And, and Isn't that remarkable? And, and you're hungry. and yeah. Holy cow, is that sin or what? <laughs> it is. These bodies of mortal flesh yeah. that are very demanding, well, that want food when they want it, want sleep when they want it. And I'm glad to hear somebody else does it because I feel really. <laughs> I'm guessing everybody in the room does it from the way they all responded. Anyway, so he gave attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayers and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed and said, Notice how he's starting the prayer. He's starting the prayer with confession. He's not saying, God, you owe me. He's not saying, God, you made promises and therefore kick in. You said you would. He starts with confessing that everything that's happening to him and Israel is completely right and just because he's going to confess Israel's sin to God. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. Now, notice what he did. There's two things that are really important. First, he identified and praised the God he was speaking to. Before he even got to his first request, he began by glorifying the God he was speaking to. You are the righteous God. You're the one who made heaven and earth. That's why Jesus in the model prayer said, begin with our father who is in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, you, you are majestic. You are holy. You are right. You have a name that should not be blasphemed. You have a plan. You're bringing a kingdom. Bring your righteousness to the planet. Then you get to your first request. But first you have to identify the God you're talking to. I, I sometimes just make myself list every quality I can think of. You are righteous and you are kind and you are holy and you are loving and you're the maker of heaven and earth and you're the sustainer of all things and, and you're the one with angels round about you and yet you're listening to me and, and just every praiseworthy thing that I can say to him. That's right in line with indicative imperative too. Isn't it just? Yep. And by the way, let me also say, since we're on the topic of prayer, and I like to point this out, praise, which we're told often, praise God. Praise is not merely saying, praise God. Praise God. That would be like my son coming to me, and he has a request. He wants to borrow my car. You can't have it. 
or he wants to, he wants me to loan him some money. You can't have it. Or he just, he wants something from me. If he came into the room and he started with, praise dad, pra pra praise dad, praise to dad. Dad praise. I praise you, dad. I'm going to go, okay, so you're a little insane. And, and what do you talk? But if he comes into the room and says, dad, you're a good dad, and I appreciate all that you do for me, and you and you do feed me, and I've got a place to live, and I appreciate that. Okay, now he's actually praising me. He's actually saying that I've done good things for him. Well, that's a very human, fleshly example of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you go before God, praising him is an appropriate part of your worshipful attitude toward him. And it's not just saying, praise God, praise God. It's actually praising him actually thanking him for who he is and what he has done and how he has loved you and how kind he has been to you and how he has provided for you and how he is the God who is the maker of all things and how he is before all things and, and after all things and how he has planned sovereignly to bring people into his glory. Th these are praiseworthy statements. So Daniel, notice, starts that way. Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He starts by praising God and then he confesses, verse 5, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Moreover, as if that's not enough, moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us... Open shame as it is this day. In other words, we're in Babylon because we deserve it. We are in this 70-year punishment because we deserve it. We've sinned against you. We've ignored your ordinances. We haven't listened to your prophets. You've been speaking to us, and we haven't been paying attention. And on top of that, we've all gone our own way and done our own thing. So we deserve what we've gotten because righteousness belongs to you. Notice that he does not say it's not right for you to do this to us, God. Because whatever God does is by definition right. Because God is right. God is holy in everything he does. God is just in everything he does. And so we, arrogant human beings, have a tendency to say, you can't do this to me, or why are you doing this to me, or this isn't fair that you're doing this to me, or what have I done that you would do this to me, or... But Daniel's approach is, you're right. You're righteous, you're just, and whatever you say, whatever you do, is completely justified because look at us. We're the people who have done nothing but rebel and sin against you, therefore we deserve precisely what we're getting. 
Moreover, we have not listened to thy servants, the prophets, who spoke in thy name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us belongs open shame as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee. So notice that Daniel is continually saying, you're right in what you do because we are sinners before you. You have told us via your prophets, via your law, you have told us what you expect of us, and we haven't done it. Now apply that to what I was saying at the very beginning of the evening. At the very beginning of the evening, I was saying there's way too much of what is called Christianity that is actually some kind of glorified self-justification. And genuine godliness, genuine Christianity, starts with the knowledge, not just the assumption, but the knowledge that before God, we are nothing but sinners. And all the way through the Bible, that's all we find, mm -hmm. that we are depraved and that we are well, maggots. That's the word that is used for us. We're not the giants. We're not the good ones. We're not the successful ones. We're, we're maggots before an absolutely righteous and holy God who has demanded a standard of us that we constantly fall short of. Now, that again is why it's so important that we do have an advocate with the Father, that we do have Jesus Christ the righteous, and that he is a completely successful Savior, and that is our guarantee, that is our hope, and that is our confidence before God, is that we do have a righteous Savior. But to use the fact that we have a righteous Savior as an excuse to justify ourselves is not Christianity, and is not Godliness. Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord, but to us open shame as it is this day. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against thee, open shame belongs to us, O Lord to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. It is, get this right, an open shame that the great kingdom of Judah, who once upon a time even the queen of Sheba had to come see for herself, when Solomon was reigning, there were no kingdoms like that on the planet. She said, I heard about it, but I didn't know the half of it till I came and saw it. Once upon a time, Judah was the major kingdom in the Middle East, and all their enemies were afraid of them, and nobody would attack them, and Judah was secure. And then through the succession of kings that chased other gods, and through the succession of worshiping other gods, and through the succession of people doing exactly what they wanted to do, and not listening to the prophets, and not following the law of God, Judah was brought down so low that ultimately they were taken into captivity by a foreign nation. And that, he says, is an open shame. Think how far down that is. And that it's not just an 
It's not just a shame, it's an open shame because all of the nations that are enemies of Israel all know that they are now in bondage. All know that they are scattered out of their land. All know that the temple where they worshiped their God has been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. They all know that for whatever reason, the God of Israel seems for all intents and purposes to have abandoned his chosen people. And that's an open shame. So he says, verse 9, Now to the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. That's the place that you're going to find restitution. You're not going to find restitution ever in self-justification. Never. You're never going to be able to go to God and say, but I've got my good works. I did the things. Lord, Lord, haven't we? cast out demons in your name haven't we prophesied in your name haven't we done these great things we've done these great things in your name haven't we done all that self-justify self-justify and Jesus said and I will say to you I, I never knew you so never in the Bible is it appropriate for a human being to stand before the God of ages and attempt to justify himself what you want from God is mercy and forgiveness. Amen. That's the only way you're going to stand before him and not be judged. He has to be loving and forgiving. And again, in Jesus Christ, via the new covenant, he's all of that. He's every bit of that. And yet there are people who are continuing to try to use the kindness, compassion, forgiveness of God as a means to say, my sin's not really all that sinful. That's why God ought to forgive me. And that's never Christianity. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Here's what Daniel's getting at. In the law of Moses, attendant with the law is a built-in curse. If you do it, God says, I'll be good to you. I'll put you in your land. I'll take care of your enemies. I'll drive out wild animals. I'll give you plenty of rain. I'll give you food to eat. I'm going to take care of you in the land of milk and honey if you do my law. But if you don't do it, I'm going to curse you and curse you and curse you. I'm going to drive you out of your land. And I'm going to give you over to your enemies. I'm going to hold back the rain. I'm going to bring all kinds of pestilence and famine and disease on you. I'm going to do all that. And so Daniel is saying, God is completely right and just in the fact that he's doing this to us. Because it's not God being mean, it's God being exactly how God said he was going to be. He said from the very beginning, if you don't do it, I'm going to curse you. And Daniel is agreeing with God, taking sides with God against himself. 
and I've used that phrase many times through the years, that the wisest approach is to take sides with God against yourself because you want, again, his mercy and his forgiveness and his restoration. What you do not want is God's justice. And if you start demanding from him that he judge you on the basis of who you are or what you've done or what you've accomplished, then he's going to have to judge all of it and he's going to have to mete out justice and that's going to be your condemnation. It never, ever works. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed thy law and turned aside, not obeying thy voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against thee. Thus, he has confirmed his word which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven There has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. Now notice again what Daniel has just done. He has not said God is unjust in what he is doing. He said God is being completely consistent with himself and with his character and with his holiness. And he has brought about exactly that which he said he was going to do. So that confirms his word. God is confirming his own word, both in his righteous faithfulness to his word and his mercy and his kindness and his forgiveness, but he's also confirming his word in his righteous judgment. And when his righteous judgment comes into your life, when things happen that you would rather not have happen, God is still just as sovereign and just as good and just as holy and just as merciful and just as just as he's ever been. But we have a tendency as human beings to think something happened in my relationship with God. What happened? Where did I go wrong? Or where did you get this mean? Or how did this come about? Or why are you doing this to me? God is so very consistent, and Daniel sees it, that God is always consistent with his word and with his character and with himself, and whatever he does is just. And we have to remember that because if you haven't had calamity in your life yet, if you haven't had struggles, trials in your life yet, keep living because it's coming. Hardships are coming. And that doesn't mean that God has changed one whit. The good news for us as Christian people who trust that everything God does is for his glory and our good, we can have confidence that when the trouble comes, that the God who loves us brought that trouble on purpose so that our faith would be strengthened and so that our confidence in Christ would be strengthened and so that he, as a just and loving God, could continue to produce that predestined transformation into the image of Christ that he promised us. But it's still the same God who brings the calamity. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem 
as it is written in the law of Moses. All this calamity has come on us, and yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to thy truth. That's the very essence of what the problem is, and it's still the problem today is that God keeps correcting people and bringing calamity on people and bringing hardship on people for the purpose of turning them to himself. And rebellious people have a tendency, nevertheless, to rather than admit their sin, rather than admit their guilt, rather than cry out for the mercy and the kindness of God, will continue to justify themselves rather than giving attention to the truth and will continue to argue that they don't deserve what they're getting. Should we talk about what you deserve for a moment? Oh, okay. No, we should not? Okay. Yeah, you don't want what you deserve. No, you, you do not want what you deserve. You want God to be kind and gracious and merciful. And yet we keep arguing arguing with him that somehow we don't deserve this, whatever it is. And the truth is, no matter how bad it gets, oh, you deserve that. But we're quick to go, I don't deserve this. In that high squeaky voice, I don't deserve this. So having laid out the problem, having laid out Israel's rebellion, having laid out the fact that they do deserve everything that's come their way, then finally he starts getting to the request. Notice he didn't start with the request. He started with who God is, and God is righteous and just, and God is forgiving and kind and merciful, and then he laid out the sin, the sin, the sin, the admission of guilt. He laid all that out, and only then does he say, now God, do what you said you were going to do. So starting at verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who has brought thy people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and has made a name for thyself as it is this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked, O Lord, in accordance with all thy righteous acts, let now thine anger and thy wrath Turn away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people have become a reproach to those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. The desolate sanctuary is the temple in Jerusalem that has been destroyed. That's the holy mountain of God. And he says, for your own sake, you made a name for yourself when you brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. Let your name be glorified for sake of yourself and your reputation and your kindness and your mercy and for the sake that you're faithful to your word for all those reasons. Notice he doesn't say, because of us. Because of me, because of how well I'm praying, because a few of us here in Jerusalem are fairly good. No, he says, all of us, all of us are sinful, but for your sake, be kind to us. For your sake, turn your wrath from us. 
for your sake because you're a good and a kind and a consistent and a loving God for your sake, then turn your wrath away from us. Turn your anger away from us. Verse 17, so now our God, listen to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplications. And for thy sake, O Lord, let thy face shine on thy desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own. Where did I begin tonight? Never self-justify. Never start with, you should be good to us, or my sin's not really that sinful. My rebellion's not really that rebellious. And I know what your word says, but I'm going to guess your word probably doesn't mean that. I'm going to reinterpret your word to justify my particular sin. Whatever my particular sin is, I'll twist your word just enough to not make my sin truly sinful. I'll make my sin a little less sinful by the way I handle your word. Daniel does none of that. He says we are guilty. We're as guilty as the day is long. And all we've got is your faithfulness to your word and your mercy and your kindness. And that's what I'm begging for. So, O my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by thy name, for we are not presenting our supplications before thee on account of any merits of our own, but on account of thy great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action. For thine own sake, O God, do not delay because thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Isn't that a wonderful prayer? Even though I do love the Lord's Prayer, which I refer to as the model prayer, I love this prayer as much because it's just a demonstration of how we should humbly approach the God of ages. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And next week, 
we'll get to the vision. Because it's 8 o'clock now, and it's going to take me a while to go through this. But this is the next vision of Daniel that he's going to be terrified by, and it's really going to set you up for the book of Revelation and the 70th week stuff. There's a whole lot to talk about here, but what I'd really like to do tonight is just leave you thinking about and pondering and contemplating the prayer of Daniel. If I do nothing else for you this evening than inspire more reverent prayer and more appropriate, humble prayer, if I've only accomplished that, then I think I've accomplished plenty. Because I have, and I know I keep saying it, but I have seen this really horrendous, in my mind, tendency of human beings to forget the God they're dealing with. And I think Daniel's reminding us. All right? Fair enough? Anybody feel cheated? I like the way the, the beginning of verse 23 did it, where he says, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. It's like, yes, you continue to plea, but all I needed to hear was the first word. Yeah. And the word went out to, to bring help. Yep, he sent you a word. And we're going to find out in a little while, Gabriel's going to talk about when you were praying and asking me questions, I was dispatched to come answer your questions. But I was withstood by the prince of Persia. Well, that was not Cyrus. Cyrus was not withstanding Gabriel. It was the spiritual entity behind Cyrus, the spiritual wickedness in high places that was withholding him. And he says, and Michael, the protector of your people, came along, and he's holding the prince of Persia at bay just so I can get to you. Well, that's kind of deep, isn't it? That kind of goes along with, I was dispatched when you began your supplication. And then Gabriel tells Daniel, I'm, I'm going to go now. And the implication is, and basically, we're going to whip up on the, you won't find the phrase whip up. But basically, we're going to get rid of the prince of Persia. And sure enough, Persia falls. And Gabriel says, and lo, the prince of Grisha comes. So there's another spiritual entity right behind him. And boom, sweeping across the Middle East and through southern Europe and northern Africa comes Alexander the Great. And so we're going to keep seeing these spiritual implications that we wrote up on the board the last couple of weeks. Because this interaction between God and his angels and Daniel the prophet is much more um, complex than just simply, hey, I was uh, standing in the mirror shaving this morning and God spoke to me and told me some stuff. It's the battle that goes on in the heavenlies. And we'll see all of that coming up. So that's coming attractions. Next week, 70 times 7. Here's my prayer for you all and then we can go home. My prayer is just like Daniel's prayer. Oh, Lord God, please hear us. Oh, Lord God, please forgive us. Oh, Lord God, listen to us when we pray, and, and we thank you for all the action that you take on our behalf, and we pray that you will keep acting on our behalf until we're safely home, until we're safely protected 
in our heavenly destiny that you've prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And do all these things not for our sake, but do these things for your sake because we know you are in the enterprise of glorifying yourself. So cause us to be praying people, worshiping people, praising people. We pray for Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of your people. We pray for your church. And we pray that in all things and in everything, you are glorified, you are magnified, you are lifted up, and that you, through your Son, get all the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.